This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. The Wildlife Conservation Society of Malaysia, or WCS Malaysia's main activities revolve around helping the Malaysian government in conducting biological monitoring and supporting protection efforts of wildlife such as the tiger, elephant, orangutan, as well as sharks and rays. Now, wildlife conservationist Dr. Mark Ryan Damaraj assumed the role of country director for WCS Malaysia back in 2021 and continues to work on implementing conservation strategies that protect habitats and species. So today on the show, he's with me uh, and he's going to discuss WCS Malaysia's work in more detail, specifically the group's work on crafting science-based solutions and taking conservation actions that benefit nature and humanity. Welcome, Mark. How are you today? Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. I'm fine, thank you. Hey, it's lovely to have you back on the show. It's been a few years since we uh, since we caught up on this particular show, so it's nice to have you back. Um, and, you know, you, of course, as I mentioned earlier, you've moved to the Wildlife Conservation Society of Malaysia. Uh, you know, just for anyone who's unfamiliar with the work that uh, the organisation does, can maybe you can uh, elaborate on that a little bit for us? Sure, Juliet. So the Wildlife Conservation Society is a global wildlife conservation organisation that is headquartered in New York. Our mission has always been about saving wildlife and wild spaces worldwide through, through science, conservation action, education, and inspiring people to value nature. Our work spans across 50 other countries, including Malaysia, and we aim to conserve the world's largest wild places, which are home to more than 50% of the world's biodiversity. And what would you say, what, what kind of work uh, does the Malaysian chapter of WCS do here, right? I mean, what are some of the unique species that you focus on here in Malaysia? I mentioned a few earlier, but yeah, maybe you can elaborate better. Well, WCS Malaysia currently focuses on three of the most threatened species of large mammals. The Malayan tiger, the Asian elephant, and the Bornean orangutan. WCS Malaysia currently operates in primarily two locations in Malaysia. Southern Peninsula Malaysia, which uh, straddles Johor and Pahang and the state of Sarawak. Mm. Well, our main role is to support the government in conservation efforts to protect these three species. We help to monitor the status of these species and assess whether our interventions are working through those assessments. We also provide technical capacity announcements where, where needed, whether encountering illegal wildlife trade or monitoring of wildlife. We also work with local communities in reducing human-wildlife conflict and finding ways to empower them to be part of conservation efforts. We're also exploring ways to support government's intentions to protect habitats and corridors. Essentially, that's what we do, Juliet. Okay, all right. And, you know, on that note, right, um, you know, just thinking of what we need to protect and what we need to be focused on, right? Should we be focusing on saving whole ecosystems with all of their natural processes instead of, like, you know, a particular sort of species as such? Oh, that's, a, that's a good one. And uh, I guess conceptual conceptually, it's a definite yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whether we can do that is a is a it's a different answer, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but I would say yes. Ultimate the ultimate goal would be to conserve the whole ecosystem, encompassing the essential processes, functions, and interactions among organisms and the environment. In a way, it relates to the need for I suppose an integrated approach and management of land, water, and living resources, which also includes us humans with hope to promote conservation and sustainable use in an equitable way. Mm. But because the ecosystem approach is just so broad, diverse and dynamic, the challenge is breaking it down to segments that is manageable and operational, but still interlinked to, the, to meet the goal. And so at the country level, how we tie different segments to achieve this through different government ministries, 
and look at anthropogenic activities that impact natural processes. And the complexities that go with this is extremely challenging, but absolutely essential. Okay, definitely. And, and you know, should key species be the focus of conservation then, you know, with attention given to, you know, the quote-unquote umbrella species, so like, you know, the tiger, for example? That's an interesting question. I would say yes and no, as it really depends on the context and the status of the species. Mm-hmm. I think for the benefit of our listeners, right, an umbrella species generally refers to wildlife which have large home ranges or habitat requirements. And so the concept is by protecting these large spaces needed by these umbrella species, you would inevitably also protect the multitude of other wildlife living within it. Yeah, exactly. So it does provide a good justification if you're looking at it from a macro view. There are also species that are umbrella species and keystone species, such as the species that WCS Malaysia has worked, is focused on. These keystone species, they recognize as keystone species because they play a critical ecosystem function. So for example, tigers, as the apex predator, they regulate the food chain. Mm. Um, elephants and orangutans as the gardeners of the forest that play a critical role in seed dispersal and forest regeneration. So if you remove these keystone species, it is going to impact your ecosystems and the underlying functions and interactions among organisms in a very, very negative manner. So, I mean, nevertheless, each species, whether umbrella or keystone species, deserves attention, particularly if it is highly threatened. Mm. So if we just focus on species with large home ranges, we might lose sight of species that are small but highly threatened due to illegal wildlife trade, for example, pangolins. Yeah. Now, if interventions to protect an umbrella species overlaps with a non-umbrella species that is highly threatened, such as tackling poaching and illegal wildlife trade across the board, then that would be ideal, but it's not always the case. And so I would, have, I would say that we would have to be clear from the onset what we are focused on and why. And, you know, you've been doing this for a long time, right? What do you think are some of the most promising solutions uh, to saving any sort of species from extinction, whether big or small? I think what is fundamental in the solution is to, to save a species is to first have a proper understanding on what the species requires and, you know, what, what are the needs of the species and what are the elements that are threatening them both historically and maybe and currently. So a proper science-based assessment is absolutely needed. Very often, this is overlooked and oversimplified. As well as a wildlife ecologist, I, can st- I can't stress enough about the need to be guided by sound science to mm-hmm. develop strategies to save species. A science-based plan developed in tandem with understanding of how to harness capacity, whether it's government or you know even civil society, to carry out key and key conservation ex- actions, as well as figuring out how to mobilize sustained funding is an important step for the formulation of any solution. Mm. In addition to this, I think another critical ingredient would be garnering political support and finding champions within the system towards these conservation initiatives. This is defi- uh, a definite must, I would say, and it would make a whole lot of difference. Funding also, that's a huge one, right? And I'm also curious to know how, you know, W, how the Wildlife Conservation Society, uh, you know, how you've guys, how you guys have been working with state governments uh, to try and curb things like the wild animal trade, for example. You know, how do you, yeah, how, do you, how did you work towards engaging with them? I think we, we focus at the site level in terms of first engaging with the government agencies to figure out how we can actually uh, close gaps. Um, and I think one of the major things is that, you know, most of the time there's some technical capacity need in terms of uh, utilizing a tool or, you know, uh, having training of uh, carrying out work in the, in the forest or, you know, biological monitoring. 
And so we aid our government partners in terms of providing technical support and capacity in using tools such as SMART, uh, which is an acronym for Spatial Monitoring and Reporting Tool. Mm. And this aids in recording, planning and implementing patrols to curb poaching. So that's one of the ways that we, um, I suppose, invest our, our time in, in terms of uh, strengthening uh, what is needed to be able to deal with uh, poaching on the ground. And how successful would you say you have been in working with the government to de- uh, develop these sorts of conservation policies? Well, we do provide input when a plan or a policy is being refined or developed by the government, such as the National Policy on Biological Diversity, the Central Forest Planning Master Plan, Tiger and Elephant Action Plans. But to be honest, I think there are a lot of wildlife policies out there already that perhaps need refinement, but more importantly, the challenges have been to implement these policies effectively. In a nutshell, the usual issues are lack of manpower, mm. equipment, technical capacity, lack of buy-in from stakeholders on a particular initiative, and the lack of a driving force to mainstream or piece everything together to make sense of impact and reassess interventions quickly. So that's always been a major challenge. So some of the policies are, are really good, um, but you know, I mean, in terms of whether there's enough funds, whether there's enough capacity has always been the issue. But it's important, isn't it, uh, Mark, to sort of work with the government and and all the different stakeholders involved to kind of form, you know, what you were saying earlier, alluding to earlier, that sort of common vision, right, to secure the future uh, of endangered wildlife and their habitats, right? I mean, how how important is that uh, as far as you're concerned? I think it is super critical, Julia, to have a common vision because some form of alignment and resource allocation across the landscape or different threats, for example, is needed to maximise our efforts together you know, to achieve the goal of saving saving wildlife. Species action plans, for example, are good uh, are a great example of having a concerted and common goal with priority actions identified. However, very often resource mobilization mobilization and sustained funding are not well quantified and specified, which can then amper efforts. So this this has been the case. I mean, even with the target action plan in the past, right? Uh, we started off with trying to um, increase tiger number or double number number of tigers, but we've we've gone down the other direction of um, you know having less than 150 tigers now. The goal was to have at least 500 tigers. Um, so yeah. I mean, sorry, the goal was actually to have a thousand tigers from 500 yeah. tigers we back then. <laughs> yes, um, I but that. you know, I mean, we've, we've gone down this trajectory. Um, yeah. So yeah, so I suppose it's 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 critical to have that common vision, but it's also critical to understand where the gaps are and now we're going to close those gaps. And, you know, I always find like in, in the conversations about uh, these sorts of things, right, there's always that gap when it comes to engaging local communities, right, uh, and getting their feedback because, you know, they have that uh, traditional knowledge. They have, you know, all that that uh, generational sort of knowledge as well, right? Have you also been working on programs to engage local communities in your work? And if so, you know, could you give us some examples? Definitely, Julia. Yeah. So in all our fieldwork, we engage indigenous and local communities as they, they are our best allies and they know the landscape better than anyone else. So, you know, it is it would be counterintuitive not to engage and work with them to develop solutions to protect wildlife. For example, when we carry out our nest count survey to determine the population of orangutans in Sarawak, together with our main partner, the Sarawak Forestry Corporation, mm. the indigenous villages that is nearest to the site is always engaged and it's often their playground or areas that they are familiar with. And over time, the bond developed provides a great platform to explore other means of getting them to be you know, stewards of wildlife monitoring and protection in a way that will benefit them as well through perhaps job opportunities or ecotourism. Like in Enda Rompin, for example, we help reduce crop damage from elephants 
for the indigenous communities that live there by providing a cost-effective mitigation tool. It's it's called siren fencing, You know, it's, mm. it it works like a tripwire that is attached to a siren. So when when the elephant actually um, you know trips the wire, it alerts the plantation owners um, uh, with with a siren. Um, so fa farmers find them extremely useful on elephant visitations and allows them to quickly respond and chase elephants as it is easier to drive elephants away before they start eating. And the cost is less than 600 ringgit to siren fence a plantation that is probably the size of a football field. Mm. So it's, it's cheap, cheap to set up, maintain and effective pro provided that the farmers get up in the night uh, or whatever it is to chase elephants. Uh, but you know, I mean, I think from our from a study, we found that eighty percent it has been successful eighty percent of the times where uh, this kind of interaction has happened. And what it does is that we're actually reducing these antagonistic uh, reactions from the farmers and from the indigenous people, um, you know, towards towards wildlife that actually come and impact. Um, yeah, I, I guess the uh, the social economic um, um, uh, work around the, the plantation or you know whether it is their fields. Uh, so basically, reducing that retaliatory. Uh, sort of effect like those wildlife. Hmm, okay, okay. So it's actually quite simple and, and you know, very easily sort of like uh, uh, easy programs that can be implemented, like easily implemented programs is what I was trying to say. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, I mean, I suppose that's how it works. I mean, there, there'll be more uh, new innovations and, and innovative ideas which, which, which we, you know, should always constantly keep trying. Like, because elephants are really smart. Mm. Um, and I mean, most of the time people use electric fencing and they figure out ways of how to trip electric fencing by pu pushing a tree or, you know, <laughs> you know basically sort of distorting that, that, that uh, power supply. Like, you know? But with siren fencing, it's just it's just a sound. So you're going to trip the wire and people still need to come out and physically chase the elephant. So in that way, you know, there's, there's I suppose that people need to come out and, and, and do something and it's not like a solution that the animals will deter by themselves by tripping the wire. But anyway, it's, it's, been, it's been very cost-effective and, and really, really successful. Mm -hmm. And are you seeing more people, like, you know, taking these ideas up? I mean, I, I mean that's, I think, a, a, an example of a success story, right? What are some other examples uh, of, you know, wildlife conservation societies programs that have worked, you know? I mean, what are your success stories as such? I mean, I think there are quite a few, but I think I, maybe I'd just like to focus... I guess the top on my list is the successful tiger conservation efforts in the Andal Rompin landscape in Johor. Mm. Now, it's absolutely important to note that this is not just a WCS effort, but a joint effort that was led by government partners, particularly the Johor National Parks Corporation, the Forestry Department of Johor, and Department of Wildlife and National Parks, as well as the Ministry of Natural Resources, Environment, and Climate Change. Mm. I mean, amidst the bleak scenario of tigers rapidly dwindling through the long term, to rapidly dwindling in the country, but through the long-term monitoring of our work, we were able to document that, you know, since 2009, the stabilization of the tiger population. I think this is only because all the parties came together to minimize the threats and the, you know, natural enabling conditions of having large prey such as bearded pig. You know, bearded, as opposed to other parts of the country, now bearded pigs are found uh, mainly in the southern forest complex and they are much larger than our normal pigs and they are excellent prey for tigers. So I think the natural enabling conditions, but also, you know, the, the different agencies coming together to tackle poaching um, has, has, you know, has really impacted the way, um, you know, we work in the landscape and mm -hmm. the way we would uh, see tigers recover. So I, I, I'm not saying that there's a, you know, a drastic increase, but even to stabilize tiger numbers, I think it's a huge success. 
And I think that's what's uh, happened in in uh, the Andorompin landscape. Um, and support for, yeah, I, I, I suppose what this tells us is that, um, you know, it, it provides a, a glimpse of hope for other areas, um, you know, where target conservation is, is being applied. So it can be done. You just need to make sure that we are able to garner, um, you know, a collective support from everyone. Hmm. And that's, but sometimes that's the problem, isn't it? Just getting everybody in that same room, having those conversations about conservation, right? Uh, it's right. people tend to work in their silos, and yeah, and then you know, it's just all these gaps, lah. Correct. That's right, and I think working with communities to help them with the problem can go a long way, hmm. even if it means helping them with a problem that is you know, not specific to that species, to in this case, tigers, right? Yeah. So, for example, helping them to reduce elephant uh, uh, crop eating, um, you know, it, it, you're helping them solve a problem. And so they, they're getting closer to understanding or at least, you know, provide the kind of support that you want for the wider conservation initiatives and interventions, which I think are difficult to measure, but, you know, it certainly helps, you know, so... This is definitely a cause for optimism for tiger conservation across Peninsular Malaysia. Mm. And this is something, of course, that you guys are continuously and continue to focus on in uh, WCS's work, right? That's right. Okay, all right. Let's just go for a quick break, Mark. When we come back, uh, I just want to ask you some sort of uh, bigger picture questions, I suppose, uh, as we like to do on the show as well. Uh, I'm speaking to Dr. Mark Ryan Damaraj. He's the Country Director of the Wildlife Conservation Society of Malaysia. Uh, we're talking about the work that WCS does, but also, I guess, you know, looking at science-based solutions for conservation as well. Uh, we'll continue our discussion after this quick break. Keep it here on Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. On the line with me today, Dr. Mark Ryan Damaraj. He is the Country Director of the Wildlife Conservation Society of Malaysia, or WCS Malaysia. Uh, some of the main work they do revolve around helping the Malaysian government in conducting biological monitoring and supporting protection efforts of wildlife, such as our Malayan tiger, elephants, orangutan, and so much more. Uh, so the Country Director, Mark, is here with me today uh, to sort of uh, explain more about that. And Mark, you know, you did that uh, so beautifully before the break. You know, explained uh, all the different things that you're doing, and of course, you know the importance of collaboration and involvement of you know all the different stakeholders are always crucial in any sort of conservation uh, effort. Now, Mark, you know, I just want to talk a little bit about Malaysia. You know, we we you know we just came out of Merdeka Day and Malaysia Day and all of that, uh, and you know, we always talk about protecting our natural heritage, uh, but I don't know if we're doing enough of that, right? And and we also know that climate change is a global concern. Uh, I don't know. Do you think that Malaysia is doing enough, you know, can we adapt and contribute to the global efforts to combat climate change while preserving our natural heritage? I think that's a definite yes. Uh, but, you know, sort of figuring out how we're going to do that is, <laughs> is what uh, we really need to get a crack on. Um, so I guess Malaysia really needs to figure out how to finance the protection of existing natural forests. Uh, you know, uh, this this may not be protected areas, uh, strictly protected areas. It could be permanent permanent reserve forests that are you know subjected to selective logging or even state land forests, right? Mm. Uh, but we we really need to figure out um, how we would maximize an opportunity such as carbon financing, or you know other sorts of nature based solutions already plus that arise. Mm. As you know, as land is a, is a it's still a state matter. It really depends on how the state and federal agencies are going to move forward to capitalize such opportunities in identifying you know, viable financing mechanisms to preserve natural forests that may otherwise be converted to other land uses. I think that is a core thing that we really need to move move on. But you know, this this um, land as a state matter, you know, uh, you know, 
whether how the revenue would be distributed and all that is something mm. that uh, we really need to to figure out now. And I mean, it'd be really good also if you can figure out how the ecological fiscal transfer initiative for biodiversity conservation by the federal government can be prioritized not just for protected area management, but aid in retaining natural forests and corridors that have been or maybe will be earmarked to be clear felt. I think there, there are already existing initiatives that can support, uh, but we just need to make sure that money is going in the right place and to be able to uh, mitigate um, this, this, this sort of threats, at least, at least uh, removing the threats uh, from the natural forest being uh, uh, clear felt. Now, I mean, just just coincidentally, of the midterm review announcement came out, right? Mm, yeah. I, th- I thought that you know this is quite relevant. I mean, having conflicting policies that may impede our quest uh, to aid global efforts to combat climate change is an important one to be recognized. Now, I think that during the twelve measure plan, it was announced that you know there's there's uh, there's going to be more protection for tiger habitats and and so on and so forth. But there was also an announcement on new natural uh, national minerals policy. Mm. And the intentions to carry out mining in permanent forest reserves, environmental sensitive areas, and protected areas. Although this initiative appears to imply the importance of, I know, I guess, sustainability and will perhaps try to mitigate the impacts of mining, the fact that mining activities would inevitably include some form of forest clearance, degradation, and increase the potential for water pollution, soil degradation, and cause secondary impacts such as creating more roads, roads into previously inaccessible forested areas. That may facilitate poaching. All of this is extremely worrying. Like, you know, all of these primary and secondary impacts are major source of concern, no matter what the mitigation measures are will be. Mm. Now, close to 70 to 80 percent of the permanent forest reserves in Peninsular Malaysia are actually home to the Malayan tiger. Thus, yeah. opening up mining sites in permanent reserve forests as well as environmental sensitive areas, you know, can be counterintuitive and contradictory to the intentions of you know saving more forests, uh, combating climate, climate change, and uh, you know, affording better protection for tiger habitat. Now, there are also indigenous communities that live in and around these forest areas that may be impacted. So I guess this is a classic issue of having conflicting policies that need further scrutiny, thought, and dialogue on this matter. But I thought this is, this is quite, uh, quite relevant uh, you know, in, this, in this conversation because over and over, we see that you, know, you might have one really good policy, but you might have another conflicting policy yeah. that kind of uh, contradicts each other. Uh. Mm. And we've seen that, I mean, happen quite often, isn't it, unfortunately? That's right. Yeah. I mean, in, in the past, it was, you know, uh, creating uh, more timber plantations, uh, monoculture plantations. Monoculture, yeah. Uh, but in actual fact, <laughs> uh, and it was legal because some, some of the, you, you can actually, you know, clear for a certain percentage of the forest reserves. Uh, but that's not what we want. We want to be able to retain natural forests, not have monoculture plantations and count that as, as part of, of our forest cover. <laughs> It's it's quite shocking, you know, and I think a lot of people, I remember doing shows about it, right, Mark, and people didn't know, they were like, you're crazy, no, that we count that as forest cover here in Malaysia, you know, it's, yeah, it's quite mind-boggling, actually. That's right. Yeah, and, but, you know, and, and again, you know, we have also made significant progress in, let's say, establishing protected areas, right? I mean, just look at um, the, the recent one from Pahang, right, the uh, the tiger conservation area as well. But what strategies, strategies do you th- believe will be crucial for maintaining and expanding these protected areas uh, in the coming decades? Well, I, I think, I think we have to first recognize that, you know, not all existing protected areas have adequate capacity to manage protected areas. Mm. I just wanted to state that because there's a, there's a tendency to assume once it's gazetted, everything is fine, you know, which is certainly not the case. So 
I mean, moving on to expanding PAs, I think we would really need to explore this this financing mechanisms, you know, whether it's PES, payment for ecosystem services, carbon or, you know, some kind of biodiversity credit. Uh, but how federal and state governments can complement efforts to figure out the financing of existing and new PAs would be uh, something that we need to really figure out. Uh. The biggest hurdle is, is you know, to to counter the loss of opportunity cost of extractive or exploitative activities or resources. I think only if we crack that, we will be able to talk about expansion. Um, and of mm -hmm. course, you know, there, there are also other uh, sort of, sorts of ways, uh, you know, there's something called a concept of other effective conservation measures, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, you know, it, it, it could mean areas that are co-managed maybe with, with communities. And, and that's, that's certainly an opportunity, but I think we kind of really need to also figure out the legal framework that will enable uh, something like that to be applied um, and to be uh, part of, um, you know, our efforts of actually expanding protected areas. So legal frameworks, like you're saying that might be the way or that is definitely needed if we want to actually see some progress in those areas. Yes, definitely. Particularly with OECMs, uh, the other effective conservation measures, mm. which, you know, are also very critical in terms of uh, trying to, to move towards what we have ratified, uh, you know, in all the other conventions as well, and 30 by 30 and, and so on and so forth. Mm. Okay, okay. And, you know, always the question comes to, yeah, but we need we need money, right? We need to develop, we need economic growth, right? Um, but, you know, we, we can see it like, right? Urbanization, infrastructure development, all of that having very significant impacts on our natural ecosystems, right? So I know this is a difficult one, but how can we start to think about balancing economic growth with the preservation of our natural landscapes and our, bio, our biodiversity? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no two ways around it, like, unfortunately, I mean, if if we want to, to look at it in short term uh, sense, uh, short term monetary gain, obviously you know I mean, clear felling uh, a patch of forest, for example, uh, for latex timber clone, is going to give you two or three fold sort of uh, uh, return. So first you're going to remove the trees and you're going to get money from that, and you know, and then you're going to plant trees, uh, timber timber uh, latex timber clone trees, and you're going to get trouble from that, and then later on you can also. Uh, you know, uh, clear fill that and get uh, timber from those those. So there's like there's a lot lot of revenue there, right? Mm. But the, the I guess the the biggest sort of um, um, thing that we have in front of us is looking at the, that short term monetary gain. We don't see uh, what how does this how is this going to impact us over the over the long run? Like you know, clearly clearing a forest patch. Um, you know, may lose uh, all the ecosystem services that 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 area could provide uh, to the to the local people. You know, whether it's clean water, whether it's you know protection from floods, soil protection. But you know, all of that is not really quantified when they're actually looking at it, right? So I think that's that's an important factor for us to recognize from from the beginning. Now, you know, it cannot be short term. You need to think, you know, how is this going to impact us over the next 10, 15 years or 20 years, for example, or even further, right? Yeah. But very often, our governments and the policies that we come up are very short term. Yeah. So, you know, um, you, you only think in maybe five years uh, sort of spans for the 12 minister plan, 11 minister plan, or, you know, <laughs> um, and, you know, and governments keep changing, right? And, and every time the governments keep changing, the policies also uh, potentially could change. Uh, but this, this, this sort of I suppose thinking needs to be ingrained. You know, that's the only way that we are going to be able to balance economic growth and preservation of the natural um, uh, areas. Now, I guess the, the the fundamental way to look at it, look at it is, you know, we have to protect as much natural forest as we can, 
natural, I'm going to stress on natural forests as we can, we need to reduce fragmentation. And the way that we reduce fragmentation is that we would avoid building infrastructure smack in the middle or, you know, create a felda. Uh, well, this was this happened in the past, like, you know, where felda, felda schemes were actually created right smack in the middle of a forest and they've got cattle in, the, in these areas and then tigers go and, go and uh, predate on, on, on this cattle. And, you know, there's, there's, so the conflict just continues, right, until either the tiger gets killed or, you know, cattle uh, is, are kept in paradox. Mm-hmm. But I just, I just thought that would be that's yeah. interesting to, 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 to point out, right, that, you know, I mean, when we plan where this infrastructure is going to be done, um, you know, putting it in, in an area where it bisects a natural forested area is, is definitely not the way to go because not only is it going to actually impact wildlife, but it's also going to be, uh, you know, um, negatively impacting the people that are in that, those areas because of conflict. So the, I guess the best way is to basically try to see if we can pos- follow existing road alignments or existing areas that uh, are not very critical to, to connectivity, for example, um, instead of, you know, um, sort of haphazardly uh, creating uh, infrastructure. Now, also, I think in terms of agriculture, right, uh, most of the plantations uh, these days have, have, have uh, fencing and all that. In a way, I think sort of planning how those fencing is 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 is, is done is also critical because it kind of block uh, the passages for for wildlife. Um, and you know, I mean, the, the, that's going at, at at the finer scale. But from a macro scale, I think, um, I mean, when you look at roads, for example, right? So if a road is built, um, um, you know, that bisect two areas. There are always ways to mitigate it through, through a viaduct, for example, this underpass or, or uh, overpass for, for wildlife. That can be done, but it costs a lot. Now, if we can avoid such uh, decisions in terms of the alignment, then we, we're going to save ourselves some money as well, uh, you know, and, you know, a lot more trouble uh, at, at the later end. So I think um, this is these are some of the things that we probably need to uh, take into consideration when looking at economic growth and preservation of, of our natural uh, landscapes and biodiversity. Mm-hmm. And would you would you be able to share some uh, innovative conservation approaches or projects that you believe will actually, uh, you know, shape the future of conservation in Malaysia and, you know, uh, kind of like, you know, complement everything that you just said earlier? Well, I, think, I think AI seems to be the <laughs> yes, new buzzword. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I suppose conservation can also benefit from, you know, from developments in this field. Uh, I mean, uh, definitely, I mean, if you if you are in the field of conservation and using camera trapping, for example, to understand a little bit about you know how many animals are there, or what kind of animals are in the forest, um, you know, in, in AI can be helpful in terms of data entry and management, where you actually have to deal with thousands of photos from a single survey. So this AI can actually differentiate what sort of species there are, and you know, that's humans, wildlife, um, and also some remote camera traps use AI to differentiate. Um, yeah, I guess people coming in with uh, um, you know firearms. So mm. real-time alert can be sent to authorities whenever a suspected encroachment activity is detected. And AI, you know, has have also been used to explore the predict uh, or to predict where future incursions of poachers or where patrols need to be maximized. So there's definitely an, um, you know there's, there's a lot of um, I suppose advancement now. You know mm. uh, that we we probably see over the next uh, couple of years. I mean, I mean, other countries, for example, like uh, drones have been used to detect animals, um, you know, and they started to use thermal imaging as well. Mm. Now, thermal imaging can be very, very useful, especially in our uh, part of the world because of the dense forest canopy. And I think it's just a matter of time where we will be able to use drones with thermal uh, uh, thermal capacity 
to be able to you know sort of figure out where people are uh, purchase uh, you know uh, are in whether they are you know because I mean, you'll be able to actually detect um, you know fire campfires and you know if there's people you know with, with thermal imaging so I think this sort of um, technology is definitely going to help uh, enforcement agencies um, and and I think this is an area where there's a lot more uh, advancement um, and it will evolve further. Okay. And, you know, from, from looking to the future to sort of looking to our past, right, um, Indigenous communities, you know, we've, we've spoken about it uh, earlier as well, but they, you know, we know play a vital role in conservation, right? Uh, we know also there's a lot of gaps and there's a, it's quite lacking, like, the sort of uh, communication and partnerships, right? What do you, uh, between, let's say, stakeholders, uh, the government authorities and Indigenous communities, how would you say Malaysia can or should strengthen partnerships with Indigenous peoples to promote sustainable conservation practices? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's important to first understand the perspectives of the indigenous communities uh, themselves, right? To really get a sense of what matters what matters most to them, mm. what are their priority issues, and from there assess how to promote such partnerships. Right? Instead of you know just coming in with um, our own our own ideas, you know what we think uh, are sustainable conservation practices. Right? So very often the issues raised can be very different depending on the sites and exposure of these indigenous communities to urban settings and maybe what we perceive as being helpful or progressive you know mm-hmm. so one aspect is one aspect that is promising is that the adv- advancing of this concept that I mentioned earlier the other effective conservation measures uh, sites outside of protected areas and this 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 uh, can be governed and you know um, co-managed I suppose in ways that deliver long-term uh, con- uh, uh, you know, sort of impacts for conservation of biodiversity. Um, now, again, the the major issue here is to be able to figure out what are the legal frameworks to yeah. enable this uh, to be further looked in. Uh, because I mean, you you may you may come to to a partnership, but you know, if you don't have those legal frameworks to enable um, the co-management of these areas, then you know, you, you're still going to be stuck in that in that in that in the issue. Mm-hmm. The I guess the other sort of uh, aspect I can think of is. And the Malaysian government's biodiversity patrolling program under uh, the Wildlife Department and the Ministry of Natural Resources and Environment and Climate Change is uh, one example of a, a great conservation program that allows indigenous communities to be hired to patrol the forest to deter poaching. Mm-hmm. It is definitely an initiative that needs to continue, and you know, it, as it enables Orangasi to be part of ongoing efforts to save our wildlife. Love. However, you know, I think it would be better if the hiring process of these indigenous communities. Um, you know, to to either either implement a permanent or a longer term employment contract for them, as opposed to you know a yearly renewal, which may be subjected to yearly budget constraints. Well, I mean the the message is to be able to get them to be um, yeah you know to be part of uh, the the solution line. You know? So I think this sort of uh, employment and, and, and um, long-term employment and being getting them to be part of the management of the area, of the area uh, would be greatly empowering the communities to be stewards of protection and and to be part of the long-term solution of safeguarding our forests and wildlife that live in it so I think that's that's the way to go um, so there are some some initiatives that are that are there but we probably need to um, you know sort of strengthen those now. Okay. And I mean, we're seeing it globally as well, right? That call to, to go back to uh, Indigenous knowledge, to, you know, to have them there, uh, to to, pro- to provide solutions as well, right? And this is not just a Malaysian thing, it is a global problem as well. 
Definitely, yeah, and and it's and it's so critical to be able to get uh, the communities, indigenous communities, to be allies with us because I mean, like I said, I mean, the wildlife the habitats are also are so um, you know they intertwine in the mm. in, in in the way that they live. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to you know think of them uh, as a stakeholder. Um, you know, they yeah. they are partners and they should be partners. Too. Okay, all right, and and uh, you know we always say that our Malaysians don't know enough lah. We don't know enough about our natural resources. We don't know enough about what we have, right? Uh, let's just talk a little bit about education. You know, how can education and and perhaps public awareness campaigns, right? How can we use that more to engage Malaysians in conservation efforts uh, and also to, I guess, you know, ensure a sustainable future for our country. I I think it's critical for education and public awareness to be used. Uh, to engage Malaysians in conservation efforts because at the end of the day, people need to know what is actually happening. Like, you know, and they need to know what's actually happening <laughs> yeah. now instead of you know what has happened over the past 10 years. But whether or not that leads to action or change in behavior, I guess it's, it's, it's something else. Like, you know, but the very least to be able to um, enable that, that, that transmission of, of knowledge and information of what's, what's, what's actually happening is, is critical. I mean, you know, starting at an early age with children being exposed to environmental concerns in schools, I think is 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 critical. I think I mean most of us, you know, when we grew up uh, in, in our in our schools, those that those were the sort of like the uh, you know the areas that we, we started to pick up uh, about maybe the brown issues, you know, about pollution and all that, mm. um, and and not so much on on, on wildlife perhaps, uh, but you know that's that's. I guess that's an avenue for us to figure out how we can utilize the, or at least imp, sort of enhance the, the current education system to be able to include something more um, interactive for, 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 I guess, this generation of, 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 of children, you know. Um, now, I think the media plays a big role in raising public awareness about wildlife conservation. And I think, you know, apart from just uh, printed media, social media is also an invaluable tool to reach out to of course, the internet savvy generation. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm completely hopeless when it comes to the social media. <laughs> uh, I understand, Mark. I completely understand. Yes. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, that's that's the generation uh, that uh, you know that that we're living with, and they are you know so so in tune with um, social media, and and I suppose that's a a great platform to to be utilized by. You know, mm. um, though you know, I guess. So the value of education and public awareness are sometimes underestimated. Ultimately, it's the I guess it's the people's voices and the actions that play a big role in determining the destiny of our life. I mean, for the benefit of ourselves and as well as our future generations. So, for this to happen, education awareness, um, you know. Is, is definitely important. Yeah. And, you know, just going back to something you said about education, it also should be in languages other than English, for example, right? I think that's something that a lot of conservationists are seeing, that there's not enough material uh, for, you know, the general public about conservation in, in more vernac- in vernacular languages, for example, in even Bahasa. So that's something also that I think conservationists are working on. You're absolutely right, Julia. And I think one example that I can give is like in uh, in, in 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 Sarawak, right? Mm. Um, I, mean, I guess using the native language, uh, we were able to um, engage the communities and and get stories, um, you know, that was actually translated from the native native language to something that the urban setting might understand, and sort of bridging those those um, you know sort of language uh, barriers and to be able to communicate. Um, um, you know, uh, uh, more effectively, I think is is definitely a key um, aspect to to look at. Okay. 
Well, Mark, you know, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. It's been very enlightening speaking to you. But uh, just just a couple more questions before I let you go. Uh, you know, we like like I mentioned, we were celebrating Malaysia Day, Merdeka Day, and you know, on BFM, we were sort of you know imagining what uh, you know our country will look like in a hundred years or what it should look like, right? So, if you could paint a picture of Malaysia in a hundred years from now, right? What do you wish it would look for, lah? What do you wish it would look like, you know, in terms of its natural landscapes, its wildlife, and very importantly, that relationship between people and planet, people and nature. I I I I think over the next few decades from now, if I just imagine, it's a bit worrying. <laughs> uh, but you know, I would I would imagine that there would definitely be more people. There yeah. will be more roads, more infrastructure, pressure on food security and water. Climate change definitely will impact, you know, uh, ecosystems and and people. Uh, so so lots of pressure on the natural natural systems. No, I mean, nevertheless, we are a species that has evolved to harness the natural resources for benefit over centuries. And oftentimes, to a point that it's no longer sustainable and even de- detrimental for our own good. Lah. So if we can be so good at doing that, I believe we can also do the reverse in applying, you know, more of a circular economy concept, harness the advancement in technology to minimize damage, and maybe invest in restoration and safeguarding our natural ecosystem now for the future. There, however, needs to be a paradigm shift in how we operate now, which is oftentimes limited to short-term monetary gain and excessive consumerism. We really need to think of what it will take for our children and our children's children to inhibit our country over the next few decades, let alone a century. So, for example, if you look at the terrestrial angle, right, we, we need forests for the ecosystem services to function that provides us with water, clean air, protection from floods. And we need wildlife to play their part in those ecosystems so that there are these balances. And then we need this forest to be connected so that wildlife can still persist over long term. So, so that we can thrive in an environment that maximizes gains, not just for people, but also for wildlife. So I guess my, my vision and hope for Malaysia is that in our quest to become a developed nation, to build a stronger economy, let us just not be so hasty and overutilize and you know, degrade our natural resources to a point of it being detrimental to this and the next generation. Mm. It's, um, it's, it's something that we all collectively need to work uh, uh, together. It's, it's, it's not a single ministry or it's not a single NGO or it's not a single community. Mm. This will not only require a shift in the way we think but and operate, but will also need strong political will and I repeat that again, strong political will to ensure that we move in this direction. Hear you loud and clear there, Mark. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Mark, uh, for, for sharing that. And, you know, in terms of uh, WCS and your work, uh, you know, any current programs, any future plans that you can share with us? And, and more importantly, you know, how can how can we support, right? How can we be part of the solution? Yeah, I, uh, I, I, we've just developed our internal five-year conservation strategy. Okay. And, you know, we're really excited to embark on this journey with the possibility of developing a, a new marine program as well. So, uh, super excited to, to move on this trajectory. I suppose there are many ways to support our work. Um, I guess for the corporates, banks, foundations, and businesses listening in, please reach out to us if, you know, if whatever that I've just spoken on about resonates with you. And if you're interested to know more, more about our work, and explore potential partnerships, please do contact us at wcsmalaysia at wcs.org. Now, for the, for the general public, 
you can definitely play a part by, you know, voicing out your concerns on the plight of wildlife on social media, in print media, and, you know, by, t- by writing to your political representatives. Uh, so the voice of the rat cat needs to be heard uh, by uh, the people who are uh, um, governing us in that sense. The more people speak out, the more governments are aware about people's concerns about wildlife. So I think that's number one that you can do. Um, the other thing is, you know, to report the illegal selling of wildlife products or containing wildlife to, or, or products that contain wildlife to the wildlife department's hotline. Like, you can find it uh, in the Department of Wildlife National Parks uh, website. And in general, I think, you know, to be more selective, to be a more selective consumer by, you know, purchasing forest-friendly products, you know, and certified, um, uh, you know, sustainable products. And reducing your consumption in general also lessens the pressure on, on Mother Nature, including forest conversion. Mm-hmm. So I think these are the small things that we can do. But I, I, I think the voice of people need to be heard. And, and uh, we, we should probably, uh, you know, figure out how we can be empowered as well as civil society to be able to raise these issues. So I think that's, that's where, um, you know, the, 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 the common man on the street uh, can be able to play a part for wildlife conservation. And like you said, Lamang, it's, it's everybody who needs, everybody needs to do something. It's not like, I cannot just think, okay, WCS is going to do it. Okay, some NGO is going to do it. Oh, it's the government's thing. Every single one of us plays a part, right? Definitely, Julia. Okay, Mark, thank you so much uh, for joining me today. I was speaking to Dr. Mark Ryan Damaraj, the Country Director of the Wildlife Conservation Society of Malaysia. If you'd like to find out more about their work and find out how you can support them, you can head to their website. So that's malaysia.wcs.org. All the information is there. And of course, you know, they've got socials as well. So do follow them on their social media channels. Uh, But if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash earth. You can also find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.